Okay, so unfair judgments. I have been so guilty of making unfair judgments in my life. I've made them. I'm probably still making them, and I'm going to have to learn. Usually, they learn the hard way. But making fair and right judgments is such an important part of life. I think of the ways that I've made unfair judgments against my family, that I've assumed that I knew what my wife was saying or thinking, or I've assumed that I understood the motives of my children, and I made a decision and I reacted a certain way based on what I had assumed, and it wasn't actual, it wasn't fair. I've treated my friends that way. I've treated my family that way. I've approached life that way, and yet I'm thankful that God is faithful to lead me in the truth, and I'm sure that you have had your fair share of being guilty of making wrong judgments. I make, I've made unfair judgments in the way that I've seen my world, the world that I live in, and I've learned and I've grown. In my lifetime, I remember some eye-opening moments that helped me realize that I'm not seeing the world in the way that I thought I was seeing the world. The first real big eye-opener for me, honestly, that I remember was when 9-11 happened. When those airplanes flew into the two towers, one into the Pentagon, one was crashed into the field. And I remember like as all that was going on, everyone's world was being shook. Like suddenly there were events happening in our lifetime to where we knew that our, the way we viewed the world couldn't remain the same. And as it was going down, like, what did I do? I turned on the news because I wanted information. And I would start to get information. And as I would get information, I would realize that day one, the story was one thing. Day two and three, the story was a little different. Day four and five, the story was a little different. One month in, the entire story was different. Two months in, the entire story was different. And as time went on, the story changed. But the story was not just changing. It was changing because of the sources that I was getting the story was changing. And then like six months later, and somebody mentioned to me, how come no one ever talks about Tower 7 that was like not hit by a plane, that was away from the debris field, and yet it collapsed as if it was like controlled demolition? What happened there? And I'm like, weird. No one ever talks about that. And I realized, maybe I don't know everything that I should know, and maybe I'm not being told everything that I maybe want to know. From that, I remember George Bush standing out there in the rubble, saying, look, like, we're here today because we hear you. The whole world hears you. And soon, those that have done this to us will be hearing from all of us. And I remember the rally cry. We were like, yeah, let's bring it back to them. You're going to touch my buildings. You're going to touch my nation. We're going to bring it back to you. And, you know, Congress, they vote unanimously. Like, we're going. And so I understand, like, the Afghan invasion and the things that were happening there. Because at that point, they were going after the people who, well, at least they said the people that were responsible but then I remember shortly after that, and next thing you know, we're getting involved in Iraq. And Iraq had nothing to do with our Twin Towers. 
but yet it was being sold on the same um, thing of, look, we have to keep terrorism from happening and remember the whole thing of the intel about weapons of mass destruction. I remember all of this stuff, and as the story would go on, and it became more and more evident that we entered into a war on false pretenses, it was like, George Bush is a liar. And everybody was chanting that, every TV channel. It was everywhere you turn. Tony Blair, the European counterpart. I remember being in England when all that was going on, and it was spray painted on all the bridges and stuff. It says Tony B-L, and then L-A-I-R was the, the liar part was pronounced. And then there was a change in the presidency, and it went from George Bush to Barack Obama. And suddenly, George Bush is a great guy. And I'm like, wait, how did that happen? It went from being portrayed as a complete monster to being an awesome guy. And even to this day, he's portrayed by that little group as being like this amazing guy. Like, we all are sane, and we all are friends. But I remember how bad they made him out to be. And so I realized, wow, these stories, they just change so quickly. And I was making my own judgments on how I thought I saw the world. But then I realized, well, maybe I'm not seeing it the way that I should. I also remember during that time that there was this, almost this warmongering that was going on that I was picking up on. I remember like wanting to exact justice upon the guilty. And then it got to a point where it was, this shadow was cast upon an entire people group, an entire ethnicity, an entire religion. And from that, it was portrayed as these guys, they all need to be um, under, under war. And at the same time, that was being promoted by conservative people who with the same breath were very pro-life when it came to their stance on abortion. And it's like, on this hand, you value human life, but on that end, you don't view, value human life. And I saw an inconsistency, and it was even an inconsistency that I held. And I remember thinking, wow, maybe I shouldn't be so quick to want to see war happen, because these are lives, and this is entering them into an eternity that if I actually believe the gospel, it would be a Christless one. I remember from that, uh, later on, um, the whole, remember the ISIS guys that started rolling in? And I started thinking, wow, how terrible. And from Christian circles, they were selling merchandise of the little, you know, Arabic letter for N, for Nazari, meaning that this is a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. And they were spray painting that on the, on the outside of, of marked Christians' homes so that they would persecute the Christians when ISIS was rolling through. And I started thinking, wow, that's so weird. That's so sad. And like all of a sudden, Christianity, we started praying for these people that are being impacted by ISIS. And yet we're asking questions like, where does ISIS come from? How come we can't stop them? And then we find out that it was our own government that kind of propped them up as a favor to Turkey so that we could go against Syria. And, we're, and John McCain, the conservative guy, was like one of the architects of it. And so on the one hand, we're praying for Christians that are getting persecuted. And on another hand, we're going to the ballot box and we're voting for the very people that are enabling it. And I'm like, I'm not seeing the world right. I'm, I'm making judgments that aren't based on like a full information. And then I started realizing the people that I'm praying for in the Middle East that are being persecuted and that are being executed, 
You know what kind of Christian they are? They're not Protestant Christians that are hanging out in, in modern Christian churches. They're Coptics, they're Eastern Orthodox, and they're Catholics. So the very same group that when they're shedding their blood because they're not denying Jesus, I'm so happy to say, yes, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. If I bring them back here to the States, I'll be like, they're an abomination and they're not Christian. They're part of a cult. And like, how come I'm so inconsistent? Why is it that when the circumstances change, I'm not judging consistently. I'm judging merely circumstantially. And yet there's information out there. I don't have to be just manipulated by everything that I'm told to feel. And so with that, I'm telling you this because the section that we're looking at this morning is specifically concerning Jesus. And it was people who were coming from all over the place, some from Nazareth, some from Galilee, some from all the way up in parts of Babylon, some from Egypt, some coming from Rome. People from coming, were coming from all over the place, and they were all coming with an idea about who Jesus is and what he was up to, but it was simply based on their information sources. But they had to come to a point where they had to make their own decision about Jesus based on their own experience with him as they got to hear him preach right then and there for himself. And so with that, we pick up our study in John chapter 7, verse 10. Again, my point wasn't to get political. And you're like, man, you just got all political. I'm just saying that like the world around you isn't the way that you're told to think all the time. And so with that... That's all, that was my point. So, okay, verse 10 through 13. It says, but when his brothers had gone up, he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is a good, or he's good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. At some point after his unbelieving brothers went up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, at some point after his disciples had gone, Jesus went too. But he didn't go with the crowd. When he went up for the Feast of Tabernacles, he went alone. The unbelieving brothers, they got to go up as pilgrims. They got to go up with the, the multitude of worshipers, this growing caravan of worshipers as they were heading to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And as they would get closer and closer, the pilgrims from Galilee would become a larger and larger crew because the roads from Tiberias and the roads from Capernaum and the roads from Magdala and all these roads would begin to converge into the main road down to Jerusalem. So the group was growing, this caravan. This was their history that they were going to celebrate. This was their formative event. As a nation, God brought them out of Egypt through the Passover, and they would go to Jerusalem to celebrate that. As a nation, God brought them through the wilderness wanderings, and they would go up to Jerusalem to celebrate that 
at Tabernacles. This journey was as special as the destination because the journey would show their coming together as a spiritual community. When they started their journey, they were the people of Capernaum. By day two, they were not just the people of Capernaum and the people of Tiberias, they were the people of Galilee. Slowly, they started losing all their tribal identities. We're up here in the region of Dan. We're over here in the region of Naphtali. Eventually, they became less and less the tribal identities, the city identities, their cultural identities. And the closer they got to Jerusalem, the more and more they became the people of God. It was their unity that was more acknowledged than all of their diversities. And that journey would show the reality of that unity. As they would go up, they would sing the Psalms of Ascent. The 15 Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. These praise songs as they would go up to Jerusalem. And you see it there in verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up, going up to worship, it's talked about pretty often in the Old Testament. It's used in the book of Exodus as God was pointing them towards their future. In Exodus 34, 24, for I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. When you go up. It's also used in First and Second Chronicles. Describing when David brought the Ark of the Covenant, he brought it up to Jerusalem. It's used of Solomon when he brings the Ark of God up into the temple. It described the priests and the Levites who went with Ezra out of Babylon. From Babylon, which was to the north, on a map you could say it's up. But in Ezra 7.7, some of the children of Israel... The priests and the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nephilim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. They're going up. And the main reason is that they're going up to worship. They were going up to Jerusalem. When we were in Israel, our tour guide, when we were getting ready to go to Jerusalem, he says, okay, guys. And we're getting ready to go to the highest point in all the earth. And we turn and he's like, there it is, Jerusalem, the highest point in all the earth. He's like, now, of course, there are some places that are higher in elevation, but there's nowhere that's higher in honor. This is the highest place in all the world. They were going up. It was chosen by God as a place for his name and his glory to dwell. The place that he wanted the temple to be built. Jerusalem is referred to as the gathering place for the exiles in Nehemiah 1.9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. 
But now where are we? We're talking about how Jesus' unbelieving brothers and his disciples have joined the caravan of the Jews to go up to Jerusalem to worship. This place that is so significant, that's so special, and yet Jesus, he is the glory of God. He is the fullness of who God is. From his very birth, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. And to him, the gathering place of the exiles, the place where the glory of God and the name of God is to dwell, the place where God is to be exalted, God is to be worshipped, here he is, God incarnate, and that place has become the most hostile place that he could go. The place that he belongs is the place that wants him the least. And so they go up with the the caravan. They go up with the multitudes. But he goes alone. He came in such a way that the people didn't even know he was coming. He went up without attracting any attention. But back in Jerusalem, they were certainly expecting him. They were, as it says in verse 11, they were looking for him. Where is he? They assumed that for a feast that's important as this, that he would surely be there. So they were keeping an eye out so as not to miss him. Now the hostility concerning Jesus there in Jerusalem, it was starting to get awkwardly obvious. The people realized that it might be dangerous to speak openly about him. John says in verse 12 that there was much complaining about him. Everyone was wondering. Some thought, Jesus is a good man. Others thought, no, he's a deceiver. But these people, they were from all over the place. The people that were in Galilee that had just witnessed him feed 5,000 with five loaves and two small fish, the ones that had seen all of his miracles, they had their own ideas about him. But yet the Jews from Rome and the Jews from Alexandria and the Jews from up in the region of Babylon, the Jews from the area of Syria and Damascus, the Jews that had scattered all over the place, those Jews that were still Jews and they'd still come up for worship, they had made their own ideas about him. But their ideas were were shaped based on the sources that they were getting the news from. And so... They all wanted to talk about it, but they also knew that they couldn't talk about it openly. They all had their ideas being formed, but they needed a chance to hear it for themselves. They knew enough, though, to know that it would be dangerous to speak openly. So they kept it, their voices low. The Jews were pretty powerful. It would be very dangerous to upset them. After all, they could be like, what? You're one of his followers? You're excommunicated from your family? You are banished from your community? They could say all kinds of stuff. So they didn't really bring it up. It's funny how um, the, the, the consensus of the powerful can really change the way that you spread information, isn't it? I remember during the pandemic, one of the interesting things was is that like you couldn't even say certain key words without getting 
the, the whatever social media platform to post further information on your behalf so that you'll know how to think about this subject. I remember at one point I wrote, man, this COVID-19 thing is interesting. If you want to know how you should think about it, Facebook will fill you in shortly below. And then sure enough, bloop. <laughs> it was fun. Because, you know, like, here's how you're supposed to think. And that's what the Jews were doing. But it, it wasn't about, like, little minor things that don't matter. It was about the thing that matters the most. It was about Jesus. And they were saying, here's how you're supposed to think. And if not, we will threaten you and the way that you're able to interact with your community. So they kept their voices low. I love it now. I mean, here we're at this place where information's still traveling, but the old means of information traveling aren't usually as trusted. People are still figuring things out for themselves. We find in verse 14 through 16, it says, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but he who sent me. So imagine the scene there in Jerusalem. It's the feast of booths, tabernacles. Pilgrims are everywhere, living in tents, in the fields, on the roads, and even on rooftops. There was a candle lighting ceremony that occurred every evening, and it was festive everywhere you looked. It was a big old celebration with religious significance. But underneath all of the festivities, there was this murmuring that was going on. The people were secretly talking to one another about Jesus. They wanted to know who he was. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem somewhere about the middle of these festivities. The people knew that there was a prophecy that God would send his messenger to his people. In Malachi 3.1, behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Now, when you read that, you think of John the Baptist, right? Good. But there's... Two messengers in this verse. I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger. Now that one's capital. Right? So first of all, there's the messenger coming before me. And then it's the Lord who you see coming into his temple. That's, that's the Messiah. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. They knew that before the, 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 the messenger that prepares the way for the Messiah comes, or after that, will the Messiah come and he will come to his temple. And I love that. The most hostile place for Jesus to be at this particular moment, and that's exactly where he goes now, in the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple. They want to kill him there. And you know where he goes? Right to where they want to kill him. And you know what he does? He teaches. I love Jesus' style. Jesus, why do you always got to make everybody crazy? I didn't make them crazy. They're crazy on their own. 
I don't make them act this way. I just come being who I am. I love that. Don't ever try to make sense of crazy. I'm telling you, if you try to make sense of crazy, you'll drive yourself crazy. Let other people be the crazy ones. You just do what you're supposed to do. And what was Jesus supposed to do? Come into his temple. The place was his. It was his name that's supposed to dwell there. It's his glory that's supposed to dwell there. And so he comes to what's rightfully his, and he speaks the truth. They knew that the Feast of Tabernacles had some kind of messianic significance. The prophet Zechariah puts an emphasis on the messianic kingdom and the Feast of Tabernacles, where he says in Zechariah 14, 16 through 19, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So they know that there's a future messianic prophecy regarding the tabernacles, regarding the Messiah, regarding the, the millennial kingdom. They know that. And here goes Jesus to the temple mount at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's not coming as simply one of the pilgrims. He's coming as the messenger of the Lord entering into his own temple. The very place that they're plotting to kill him. And as they listened, in verse 15, they were amazed. It seems as though these people, they'd heard about Jesus before, but they'd never heard Jesus before. And so they were amazed at his education. In verse 15, how does this man know letters? Literally, how does this man know sacred letters? How does this man know the Bible? There would have been no surprise for Jesus to know some of the Bible. I mean, it was read in worship in the synagogue every Sabbath. Anyone, if they were listening at all, they would have picked up a little bit. Every Jewish boy was taught to say the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was obvious that Jesus knew enough to read the scripture in the synagogue service in Luke 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So like I said, some knowledge of the sacred letters wouldn't have been surprising. But what was surprising them was the advanced knowledge. Advanced education took place in the rabbinical schools. A student would join himself to a rabbi, and the rabbi would teach. The rabbi would make accessible to these students the, these books. Now, that was the interesting thing about it. You couldn't just go down to the bookstore and get a book in those days because books were written by hand. 
I don't know when the last time you're like, I really like this book. Let me make a hand copy of the whole thing with a pen. You know, I mean, nowadays you're like, can I like photocopy it? Can I scan it? Can you just send me a PDF? But to sit down and be like, this is really important. Like, I have friends that need to read this. Can I check this out? You can't take this anywhere. This is so precious. This took a guy four years to write. So like, no, okay, I'll just make my own copies. And so if you were going to learn scripture in those days, you had to memorize it. Memorization was so key for these early rabbinic schools. Jesus hadn't been through rabbinic training, and yet he knew the Bible so well. It's like, how do you have this, like, right on the top of your head? How are you just so freely able to, like, quote Scripture? Like, as if, like, you came up with it or something. And you know what? They never expected a man who came from a carpenter's home in Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? To be able to teach like Jesus taught. The beginning of the Gospel of John, we read, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. When we read that expression, we're talking about the logos, the divine, the fullness of the mind of God. Now, it's easy to take and then conflate the contexts. You know what conflating is? It's like, um, like say there's a fire over here in the junk farm, um, Pihana Farms or whatever, and somebody's burning a car. And then let's say like, like five blocks down, like a little brush fire starts. But then over in Sand Hill, the wind is blowing both those smokes together and when the time you get to Sand Hill, you might think, oh, there's one fire, because the smokes have conflated. They've, they've come together, and you think, oh, it's just one thing. It's easy to read. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word, uh, the word was with God, and the Word was God. And then to think that, like, the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's easy to take those two and be like, in the beginning was the Bible. And the Bible was with God, and the Bible, or the Bible was with God, and the Bible was God, and the Bible became flesh. Jesus is the Bible. That is wrong. Okay? It's not like, I have my own Jesus right here. Okay? Jesus says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. Yet you would not come to me that you would have life. So this, accurately, this is God's revelation to us so that we would know God. But the fullness of who God is, is Jesus, right? So this is like, we know a, we know a whole lot about God. As much as God has chosen to reveal to us, we know about that through the scripture. Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which have been revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do and keep all the words of this law. 
So there's secret things that belong to God, but there's the things that he's revealed, and he's revealed them to us in his word. He's not having new revelation. There's not like another testament. This is the fullness of his revelation. But this points us to Jesus. Every, everything, it's pointing to, pinpointing that he is the one. And so when we read that, in the beginning is the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. The very one, the fullness of his counsel, the fullness, the off shining of his glory. Could you imagine what it would be like to sit and listen to Jesus teach? Whew. Now that would be amazing. He spoke so insightfully and so powerfully that even his enemies marveled at his ability. He didn't speak like any other teacher in Israel. He was taking these ancient prophecies and other passages and expounding them and explaining them. And he didn't do it like the rabbis did because when the rabbis would begin to talk about something, they would say, well, the sages say, or tradition says, or the Talmud teaches, or the Mishnah explains, or Rabbi so-and-so has given this commentary, and that's how they would begin. But Jesus, he says this, Verily, verily, I say to you. And it's like, mic drop. <laughs> the utmost authority of the scripture is the one who all of scripture is pointing to. And there he is teaching the very book that's pointing to him. That would be so cool. And when he talked, the people listened. And don't you just love it when you're sitting in a Bible study and it just starts to connect? Like, you're like, man, that's totally where I've been this week. I was just thinking that. I was just talking about that with my, how is it that, like, I'm part of something right now. There's something bigger than just hearing this. This is like, it's plugging into my life. And then the Lord starts giving you these like cross-references and you start thinking how this scripture connects to that scripture and it's just, it's hitting home and I love it in those moments where it's like, wow, this is so, the word of God is just coming alive to me right now. It was like that relentlessly with Jesus. But yet the people, they fell into the trap. The same trap that so many fall into today. The idea that like, but what right does he have to speak like this because he never went to our rabbinical schools? What right does that guy have to speak on behalf of Jesus? He never even went to seminary. He didn't go to no Bible school. Who does he think he is? Sad to think that the only way that some will ever think that you're qualified to be a minister of Jesus Christ is if you pay enough money to get the initiation and the fancy little piece of paper from those that'll say, you have made it. You get to be a minister of Jesus Christ. But I read the Bible and I read that it's God that qualifies and it's God that equips I read of John the Baptist when you find in Luke 3 that there's all of these fancy and important people. And yet it says so gently, all of these important people, and yet the word of God 
came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went forth to preach. Even when you think of modern education as it stands today, every now and then you'll hear of people that are like, they're like a nutritionist, or they're like a, a new type of massage therapist, or, um, you know, late, lately I see these people cruising around where they have all these like giant hickeys on their back, you know, because they've used this like steam stuff. And I'm not saying that that doesn't help. It might be awesome. There's, there's a lot of like neat benefits to that. But when you meet these guys and then they're like, yeah, I'm a doctor. And you're like, oh, you're a doctor. Cool. Like, so wh- how did you get, become a doctor? Well, I went to this school. Where, where did that school start? It started like three years ago in a brand new field of education. Like brand new, huh? How did they become doctors? Well, you know, they were just the leaders of that industry. So they all got together and said, we're doctors. And then we get to tell people who's doctors now. And it's weird that any field that there is, you kind of go back to it, and it was a group of people that all sat around one day, and they're like, you know what? We're probably the smartest ones in this, so let's go around and tell people who has now come into our level, and we'll confer upon them this specific acknowledgement. And therefore, I have a doctorate in whatever from this group, and I have a doctorate in whatever from that, because it was a bunch of people, and maybe they were the best, but it was literally just a group of people that say so. That's all it is. There's nothing magic behind it. It's just a group of people that say so. And yet here, they're complaining that Jesus didn't have the right group of people standing around and saying so. But you know who he had saying so? The Father. The works that he did the way that his words were impacting their lives. So when people asked Jesus where he got his teaching, he told them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. He's not even claiming to be a self-made, self-taught man. Now I'll tell you, like many people have gone on to become brilliant, not because they went to school, but because they were diligent and they studied. They learned a lot. And I think that's so important. Please don't ever equate ignorance or stupidity with spirituality. I'm just a godly person, so I try to not think about anything. There's a really important function and factor of loving God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind. Your ignorance, your your deliberate ignorance doesn't honor God. You should study the scripture. You should get to know the Lord through his word. You should find some field of the world around us that is so big and vast and beautiful. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The earth is proclaiming his handiwork. Familiarize yourself with the wonders of what God made. It was said of Solomon that he could speak articulately of so many different subjects because it all spoke of the Lord and his glory. So, like, use your mind. It's a great thing. So I'm not, I'm not knocking education. Please don't think that at all. But what I am saying here is Jesus didn't even say, I taught myself. I studied hard. The way he responded was, my teaching is not my own. 
Isaiah 50, verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to, who, to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. He doesn't say, he doesn't even say God taught me. He says, he who sent me. He who sent me. That expression is the gospel. He who sent me. God sent his son. This is so different than what the ancient world thought when they thought about their their deities in their pantheon. The Greeks thought of their gods as being removed from ordinary people, living in some serene existence on top of Mount Olympus, and they were far too um, great to be affected by our petty, mortal, insignificant struggles. But God so loved the world that he sent his son. And Jesus kept saying that God had sent him. Not only did God love and act in love in the past, and not only was there some future promise of God acting in love towards his people, but presently, then, God was loving them, and presently now, God loves you. This was the mission of Jesus. God was taking action and bringing about salvation. It's seen in everything that Jesus did and everything that he said. And in verse 17 and 18, if anyone wills to do his will. I love the way that's word. If you will to do his will, then he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. I've seen people who have been exposed to the gospel for years and years, and yet they never seem to grow. And after years of sitting under the scripture, the reason there's no growth and no fruit is because there's no commitment. There is no willing to do his will. But it's also beautiful to see people who so quickly figure it out that it's important to practice what you learn. I love to see how quickly some of you have grown. Where it's like, you come, you sit under God's word for a little while, and you take it so seriously, you're like, Lord, I want, I want to follow you. I want to do what your word says. I want to be that kind of a believer. And how strong you become, how mature you become so quickly. And with that heart, The word of Jesus comes alive when you're like, I will to do your will. I want to do what you want. But from that now, Jesus turns up the heat. You see, they marveled at his education, but they were concerned, they were confused about the law of Moses. And so therefore, in verse 19 through 23, he says, did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. 
If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. He begins to speak of the law. And in doing so, he's not turning to an unrelated subject. He's addressing the fact that they are all making their decisions based on Jesus, uh, or their decisions about Jesus based on what they've heard. And a lot of what they were hearing was coming from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Now, the Jews believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the ones that Moses wrote, that they were so important. Everything that they did was to bring out how important the law was. The religious leaders, they had been criticizing Jesus and saying, he rejects the teachings of Moses, but we hold to what Moses teaches. And everyone knew that God had spoken through Moses. But Jesus addresses their so-called faithfulness and loyalty to Moses by basically saying, hey, that, the law of Moses, none of you keep that. And that would be shocking for them to hear. Because that wasn't just a subject that they thought about from time to time. That was the center of their study. It was their model for living. They constantly tried to live according to the law. So Jesus says, look, why are you trying to kill me? And the crowds, remember, they don't fully understand all the drama that's going on in Jerusalem. They know it's not safe to speak openly about Jesus, but they don't know about the plotting that's going on. They came from all over. The idea of trying to kill Jesus, that sounded crazy to them. So he states, look, I've done one work. One work, and you've tried to kill me. And what he's referring to is, remember, the last time he was in Jerusalem, in John chapter 5? We're there in John chapter 5, and what does he do? He comes into that place called Bethesda, the house of mercy, right outside of the Temple Mount. And there, where all these sick people were, he came upon this man that had been sitting there for years. And he had been sick 38 years, and Jesus healed the man. The man took up his bed and walked. And that miracle Jesus performed was on the Sabbath. And man, did that cause a stir. It says in John 5, 16, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. They were so mad. He's breaking the law. Look at what he's doing. He's working on the Sabbath. We need to kill him. And he's saying, you break the law too. Kill yourself? You want to get consistent? You want to say one thing's one way but not the other way? You want to be even? You want to be fair? You want to judge some righteous judgment here? His argument was, I made a man well on the Sabbath. And everybody was happy about that. But in obedience to the law of Moses, your leaders will take a boy, an infant child, eight days old, and, if he's, and you will circumcise him on the Sabbath. Because the law said that 
every male child on the eighth day should be circumcised. Now, it happened, probably like one out of every eight boys happened to be born on a day that the eighth day would be the Sabbath. And so it wasn't an uncommon thing for the priests and the rabbis and the religious leaders who weren't supposed to be working on the Sabbath to still pull out their scalpel or whatever they used and to circumcise a child on the Sabbath. You know what that was? That was work. Now look at this, circumcision. You know the word scissor, to cut and circum, to cut around. Literally what it is is taking the intact body and then mutilating a part of it, removing a part of it. And it had moral significance, but still what it is is it's removing a healthy and intact part of the body. Mutilation of the flesh. Cutting off a part of the foreskin as a sign of putting away the evil of the flesh. Jesus argues, he says, look, you guys do that on the Sabbath day. And thereby doing that, you violate the Sabbath rest. You mutilate a little boy on the Sabbath day. Isn't it better for me to heal a man and make him whole on the Sabbath day? You're being inconsistent. You see, but the critics, they didn't understand what the Sabbath had been instituted for. If they reflected on the meaning of their regular practice of circumcision, which none of them questioned, they would see it for themselves. What would they see? That the law of Moses provided for circumcision on the eighth day. What was circumcision? It was that external sign that would show that that child was being welcomed in to God's covenant people. That that child was being welcomed in to like the family of God on earth. And they valued that as a priority over, look, I'm not supposed to work it this day, but you being, being welcomed in to the family of God on earth, to the covenant promises of God, that is higher than this. And therefore we will gladly do this. So what does it mean? It means in the, just circumcision alone that the person was more important than the rules. That the person himself was more important than the rules that were all set up. The law itself bears witness to this. So Jesus healing, he wasn't just concerned with one part of, of the guy's body. He was healing the entire man in verse 23. Shouldn't that be celebrated just like when you'd celebrate the circumcision of your child on the eighth day? Yay! He's welcomed into the covenant people of God. Woohoo! What? This guy, he couldn't walk for 38 years sitting there in his own stench and regret, and now he's made whole, and the first place he goes is to the temple to worship? That should be celebrated. But these guys were so inconsistent. It was unthinkable to Jesus that that man should be allowed to remain in that helplessness and hopelessness any longer. 
And that's why they were so wrong in their attitude. Now, the last time I taught this passage was probably 29 years ago. And I was teaching it at a home Bible study in this little island off of San Diego called Coronado. And there in Coronado, you have a couple of things. You have Navy SEALs, and you have super wealthy people. And there's a bridge, but, um, and like a landmass. And if you go that way, then you get down to Imperial Beach, right? And, uh, but in Coronado, I was teaching this Bible study, and what ended up happening, the kids in Coronado, it's like, you know, living on the island here, right? Everybody eventually becomes a small community, but it's a small community attached to a big city. But everybody knew everybody. A lot of these parents, they were all in their lifestyles of the rich and famous, and the kids didn't fit into that lifestyle, so they would just give their kids, here's 100 bucks, stay out of my hair today. And a lot of these kids, they found drugs. They would be shooting heroin between their toes so that not to have tracks to, you know, get, get caught. So they were getting in all kinds of trouble. They were the worst of the worst. And yet a couple of them got saved, and they were inviting their friends, and their friends were coming to this Bible study. I remember reaching out to the local church there and being like, hey, I got these kids coming. What do you know about them? And they're like, those kids are coming to a Bible study? That's a miracle. Totally was. But I remember as I'm teaching this, there's this kid named Chad, and he was one of these heroin users. And as I'm teaching this, there's a big knock on the door, boom, 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 and it's a police officer. And all the kids start suddenly freaking out because every one of them is up to no good. And now there's a police officer coming to the door, and he's like, I'm here for Chad. And then Chad's like, uh, and I'm like, can we at least finish Bible study? And he's like, sure, come in, stand here. A lot of those kids didn't pay much attention once the cop was standing in there. But I'm, as I'm preaching this, though, Chad, he gets all weird, and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Uh, that, that's so not me. Like, what do you mean? He's like, I wouldn't mutilate anybody. He got, he's like just all caught up on the wrong part. But Chad's brain was pretty cooked. A few months later, Chad gave his life to Jesus. He made his own decision for the Lord immediately checked himself into a rehab and lived in victory over sin for about two years. After about two years, he ended up with the wrong crowd. One day and one night, one person said, hey, let's, let's do drugs like we used to. And Chad said, okay. And he overdosed and died. And then I had to do Chad's funeral there in Coronado. And I got to once again pre present to all of these kids. Chad will understand victory and death, but he didn't understand that Jesus could also give him total victory in life. And all of you have to make your own decision concerning Jesus. And that's true even for us here today. So from that, we find in verse 24... Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. The fact is, is that you have to make your own decisions. These guys had heard about Jesus from all their different sources, but now they're hearing from Jesus. And as they're hearing from Jesus, they're marveling. But I want to encourage you, don't just merely make superficial looks at things. Get your values straight. 
Look at all things around you from multiple points of view, but ultimately from God's point of view. And only then can you make righteous judgment. But this isn't speaking about righteous judgments on every other detail. This is speaking in the present tense of the issue at hand. And the issue at hand is, is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This question, those people had to judge Jesus rightly. It's the most important question. It's the question that repeats itself over and over again in John's gospel. It's the very purpose for him writing, as he says in John 20, verse 31, for these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's what the prologue was about. That's what John's testimony, John the Baptist's testimony. I'm not the light. I'm just bearing witness to the light. That's what Nicodemus' testimony was about. No one can do what you're doing unless God is with them. That's what all of Jesus' miracles are about, all his teachings are about, that you may know and that you may believe. But you have to judge Jesus rightly. Who is he? Who does the scripture declare him to be? And the Bible declares that his name is Emmanuel. Mighty, like God with us. That he is the Lord. That he is the only one who can save you. That his death alone is what satisfies the wrath of God on your behalf. That he is the one that you are to cling to. That he is the one you are to put your trust in. That he is the one that you are to believe. But you must judge Jesus rightly. You have to make your own decision. 